Nicely done. Good to see you. Amen. That's an old song, actually. You know, that's a really old song. What a great song, though. Thanks for waking us up, Orlando. Thanks for being here this morning. Man, kind of a rainy, dreary Sunday morning. Thanks for being here. I did see, Daryl, it was five degrees last night in Buffalo. So, you know. Dave, yeah, that's why we're here. Dave's worried about getting snowed in in Pennsylvania. It's snowing in Georgia, so we'll take 55 and rain. I can live with that. Glad that you're here this morning. Through the years, there have been a lot of different comedians that have used some strategies to try to get some laughs out of people, and that is asking little kids to solve grown-up problems. You've paid attention to that, right? Art Linkletter, I guess, did it first years ago. But then over the years, a lot of comedians have got a lot of laughs by asking little kids to solve grown-up problems. Just a couple weeks ago, I saw Michael Strahan on Good Morning America asking little kids to solve grown-up problems. For instance, they asked a little girl... What do you think would be the best way to convince people not to smoke cigarettes because it's so unhealthy? This little girl said, well, I would find someone who's smoking. I would go to their house. I would then pretend to smoke a cigarette, and I'd pretend to die. (laughs) Kind of a dramatic little girl, right? Asked a little boy how he would deal with global warming. Big problem, you know, global warming. He thinks the law should be passed that for 30 minutes every day, everybody in America has to open up their refrigerator. (laughs) Got to cool everything off, right? He did say refrigerator, not freezer, because he said the ice cream would melt if you open the freezer that long, which I guess is a bigger problem for a little boy ice cream melting than global warming. But here's a tough problem that some kids were asked to solve. With billions of people in the world, it seems like someone should come up with a system where nobody's lonely. With billions of people in the world, what kind of system could we come up to make sure no one's lonely? And and one little boy said, well, I think you should get a list of all the names and addresses of people who are lonely. And then get a list of all the names and addresses of people who aren't lonely put the two lists together and then the people who aren't lonely can make the people who are lonely not lonely. Hmm. It's a kid with a gift of administration, right? One little girl said, if you're lonely, you should get a dog or a husband. <laughs> I'm not sure those, either one of those is a great strategy for loneliness, but, uh, but with billions of people in the world, it seems like someone should come up with a system where no one is lonely. Do you know that just a couple years ago, the UK added to their cabinet a post for the Minister for Loneliness? Not making that up. Have a position, a a cabinet position, the Minister for Loneliness. In Japan, the problem of elderly people being lonely and dying alone is so uh, prevalent that it actually has a name for it Um, Kodakushi. It's got a name. Again, uh, kind of widespread acceptance when a few years ago they discovered that a man who was 70 years old had died. Nobody knew about it for three years. He had all his bills on an auto draw, and it wasn't until his bank account ran dry that anybody thought to go check on him. He'd been dead for over three years. 
Apparently that kind of thing happens all the time. No more than ever, people are living away from family and away from friends. So many people now don't even go to work anymore, right? Working at home, working virtually has grown exponentially over the last couple years. Our friends are all online now. Our co-workers are even virtual now. Human interaction is at an all-time low. With billions of people on the earth, it seems like someone should come up with a system where no one's lonely. Someone did. Jesus says in John 13, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Billions of people in the world, someone should be able to come up with a system where no one's lonely. Someone did. His name is Jesus, and the place is the church. You know, when you you say church to most people in in our society, they think of a building where something happens for an hour or two, you know, during the weekend. But Jesus had so, so, so much more in mind when he established the church. It's not just a, a place where we meet. Jesus talks about us being family. Not necessarily a biological family, but... Spiritual family. Remember when Jesus was teaching one day and some people said, hey, your mom and your brothers are out here and they're looking for you. Remember what Jesus' response to that was? Mark records it for us. This is Jesus speaking. Who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus did not come to establish a club here on earth. He came to establish a family. And again, not necessarily a biological family, a spiritual family. And I don't know what your experience was with your, or is with your biological family. Maybe it's wonderful. Maybe it's difficult. But Jesus wants you to know that's not your ultimate family. That's the family that we are ultimately a part of is this family. God aches for that. Jesus died for that. That's what we're called to be. That's who we're called to be. You know, part of this 242 focus that we're trying to better understand is, you know, what does that look like here? The Bay Area. In this place. You know, how do we roll up our sleeves and do a better job of being that family? And I've talked about this before, I'll I'll talk about it again. There's a phrase that New Testament writers love to use. In fact, they use it all the time. 59 different times this phrase is used, and that's the phrase, one another. 59 different times New Testament writers talk about us being involved in one another's lives in very specific ways. This church that Jesus came to establish It was going to be defined by one another-ness. There's commands like, be at peace with one another. Honor one another. Submit to one another. Accept one another. They were really serious about this in the first century. Admonish one another. Speak truth to one another. Be devoted to one another. 
No, it, it was a completely different way to do life and do life together. You know, in our society, you, it's not too unusual for somebody to drive by a building and say, that's my church. That makes sense to us, right? That's my church. But no one ever drives by a, a building and says, that's my family. You might point to a house where your family lives, but we understand that our family is something different. The family is not the house. The family are those people in the house. This building is not our church. Our church is us. The people inside the building. Jesus never told anyone, go to church. What he said is, I want you to follow me and be part of my family. To love one another, to serve one another, to carry one another's burdens, instruct one another, encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. So obviously, if we're going to obey those, all those one another commandments, we've got to have some serious, significant relationships with one another. I can't one another all by myself. I can't encourage you, and I can't be encouraged by you. I can't fulfill those 59 commandments that those New Testament writers use. Now, in Bay Area, we are convinced that one of the best strategies to pull this off is our 242 life groups. It's what we're calling them. That's our new graphic, by the way. Thank you, George Klein and his daughter, Anna, for our new graphic. Um, Life groups... Small groups, community groups, cell groups, whatever you want to call them. You know, that's been a part of our DNA here at Bay Area for years and years and years. And every so often I preach sermons about life groups. And every so often we try to encourage people to get more involved in life groups. But as we begin sharpening our focus on this idea of what the first century Christians were doing with each other, it became pretty obvious, okay, what we do doesn't exactly look like what they did. The way we do life together, I'm not exactly sure that's the same level of living life together that that they accomplished. So, our plan is not to abandon life groups as we've always known them. Absolutely not. A lot of people ask me that. Hey, this new thing coming up, am I going to be out of my life group? No. If you are in a life group right now, listen, nothing changes. The groups aren't going to be blown up. They're not going to be mixed up. Nothing changes with the life groups as we know them now. We want to encourage more people to be involved, but we also want to expand our vision of what we're calling life groups. We want to give people more opportunities to be devoted, not just to the apostles' teaching, but also to fellowship, and also to breaking bread together. Also, the prayer. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to be explaining some of those things and what that's going to look like. Then in two Sundays on January the 30th, you are going to have not just the opportunity, but you're going to kind of be expected to at least take a small step toward getting involved in a 242 life group. And it's really going to be important. I really want to encourage you to be here for the next two Sundays. Be here physically in person. Those of you who are watching online, I understand that there's a lot of health issues that you're concerned about. But if you can be here in the next two weeks, I really encourage you. 
to be here as we talk about what this is going to look like uh, moving forward for us here in this family. Now, for the rest of my time this morning, I want to take just a couple minutes and talk about the why. Why it's so important. And I want to kind of preface my thoughts with a story that you've all heard before. It's old. It's always told as a joke. I personally don't think it's very funny. I think it's more tragic than funny. But it's a story about a a woman who uh, calls a friend on the phone and she asks, how are you doing? And her friend said, terrible. I'm having the worst day of my life. My head is splitting. My back is killing me. The kids are driving me crazy. My house is a wreck. I have no idea what I'm going to cook for dinner tonight. It's like the worst day ever. And her friend said, listen, I'm coming right over. I'm going to take care of your kids. I'm going to clean your house. I'm going to cook you dinner for tonight. I want you to lay down on the couch. I don't want you to have a worry in the world. You just sit quietly and rest. And you just just be ready for when Sam comes home this evening. She said, who's Sam? Sam, your husband. I'm not married to Sam. I'm married to Bill. And then the lady that called said, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I dialed the wrong number. A long pause. Then the woman asks, so does this mean you're not coming over? <laughs> I told you you've heard that before. Listen, you know what the difference is between the world we live in right now and the world of our grandparents? You know what has changed in our world? It's not the stress of making ends meet. It's not trying to make a living. It's not the pressure of raising a family. It's not the burden of failure or the burden of loss. What is different? What has changed in our world today? Nobody's coming over. We live in a world where nobody's coming over. We live in a time of unbelievable advancements in technology and financial advancements, educational, vocational opportunities. But nobody's coming over. One of those one another commands that the Bible talks about is the need for us to be the person who comes over. We're commanded in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. Galatians chapter 6. Share each other's troubles and problems. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. It's a strange thing, but I promise it's true. And it gets really deep into the reality of our lives. But nobody wants to acknowledge it. You know, someone's carrying a burden. A really deep burden. Someone has uh, some things going on in their lives where there's there's just a lot of Shame. They got a problem with some of their children. There's a problem in their marriage. There's, there's a problem in their job. But they don't have anybody they can talk to about it. Because they don't know anybody well enough to share that kind of information. They certainly don't trust anyone well enough to share that kind of information with them. But when you love someone, you help share problems, Right? When we love people, we help share their problems. You parents, you know about this. Isn't that kind of the definition of a parent? You know, when our kids are struggling, we want to help. We want to do whatever we can to help them bear their burdens. We want to lighten some of that load. We want them to know, listen, we're in this thing together, okay? I love you. I'm going to help you however I can. Oh, yeah, we get that as parents. 
And I don't exactly understand how, but again, I promise it's true. When you're loved, your burdens become lighter. When you know that you're loved, your burdens become lighter. It takes more than just a conversation in a parking lot. We've got to be the ones who come over when people are having a hard time. Here's another thing that we're commanded to do for each other, with each other. And that is we are to accept each other. When we do life together, God commands us to accept one another. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Paul tells those Roman Christians, I want you to accept each other just as Christ accepted you. Question, how did Christ accept you? Did he ask what race you were? Did he, did he want to know if you were rich or poor? Did he want to know if you were educated or maybe you know, a, a dropout? Single? Married? Divorced? Did he accept you when you finally got good enough? When you got worthy? When you were finally holy enough? No, of course not. Jesus' really only question to us has been, do you want my love? Will you accept my love? And that's really Jesus' question, right? He's not going to force himself on us. He wants to know, will you accept my love? Do you want my love? And when we're with people, well, you know, talking to people at work, talking to people at the gym, people show up here, you know. The question we should be asking is, do you want the love of Jesus? Because really, at the end of the day, what do we have to offer that's better than the love of Jesus? That's what, our that's what this community has to offer is Jesus. You know, the world will tell you there are different levels of acceptance. God hates that. I'm telling you right now, God hates that. God hates it when the, the beautiful people are put up here and you know, maybe the not-so-beautiful people are down here. God hates it when I elevate people who look like me and think like me and act like me and vote like me and everybody who's not like me, I sort of dismiss. God hates that. That's not the beauty of the church. That's the strategy of Satan. Jesus died to combat that, to overthrow that, that, uh, that uh, strategy. Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes... You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. All of you who have claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are set apart. And then he goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, which we pass right over that, neither Jew nor Greek. That is a huge statement that Paul just made in the first century. To tell a Jew or a Greek, there's no difference now. Oh boy. Slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul's teaching really could not be more clear on this thing. He says, listen, if you've been baptized into Christ, if you've been clothed with Christ, you belong. 
If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you belong. If you're a child of God's this morning, you belong here. That's why God's plan is for the church to be a place of irrational commitment to each other. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Don't miss that last section that that Paul writes, in order to bring praise to God. Paul knew when the church is firing on all cylinders, when the church is accepting each other like Jesus accepted us, we make God look good. That is really attractive. We find acceptance in community. I'll give you another dynamic that is really vital to spiritual health, and it, it, it might be one of the hardest ones. And it's something that I'm convinced does not happen here. It doesn't happen in a service between 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And that is our need to be real with each other, to be vulnerable to be honest, to be transparent. Our need to allow people to see the real me and to be able to see the real you. When we truly do life together, we truly see each other. James writes in James chapter 5, admit your faults to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Wait, what? Admit your faults to one another. Ooh, pump the brakes there, preacher. (laughs) You're crossing a little bit of a line. Admit your faults to each other. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with James, the Holy Spirit. Admit your faults to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. You know, James is really asking, you want to be healed? Part of that involves admitting your faults to someone who cares. Praying for each other. I mentioned it doesn't happen here. You know where it does happen? You know where you really see each other? Around a table. Sharing a meal together. Maybe in a small group Bible study. Maybe on a golf course. Playing a couple rounds with some Christian brothers. Maybe in a park with some other Christian women, some young moms who are on a walk with their kids. That's where we get to know each other. That's where we share our lives with each other. That's where we become trusting enough to find that one or two people that we can share our burdens with and our struggles with, people that we trust. Now you think about Jesus. Most of what we have learned from Jesus did not come from his sermons. Didn't come from the classes that he taught at the temple. He he preached some great sermons and he did some great teaching in the temple. But most of what we learn from Jesus, how do we learn it? We just listen in. We just look in on him living life with people. He's sitting around a table eating with some friends. Sitting around a table eating with some people who don't like him. He's traveling down the road. He's stopping beside the road. He's having conversations with people. And Jesus had this way of being completely open and honest with everybody. And he had this way, too, of being able to put his finger on the very thing that most people were probably trying to hide. You know, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree. 
He understands that little guy's greed. He understands the problem that Zacchaeus Zacchaeus is having. He still invites himself to his house. He meets this Samaritan woman at the well. He understands the life she's led. He knows about those five men that she's had as husband. She knows about the guy that she's living with now that she's not married to. But he still talks to her about spiritual things. Thomas, he knew Thomas's doubts. That woman in John 8 who was brought before him and she'd just been caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus knew that. And yet he still showed love to that lady. He spoke forgiveness over this woman, spoke healing over this woman. Now even Peter, who was so close to Jesus, think about the worst day of Peter's life. That day when he denied even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, three times... Jesus knew the guilt he was carrying around. He knew the shame he was carrying around. Jesus confronts him on it. And Peter's like, I guess this means you're not coming over. And of course, Jesus is like, oh, I'm I'm coming over. You can bet Jesus is coming over. And again, I know it's Jesus, but all those examples and so many others, knowing all all the pretense and all the posturing, the nonsense and all the pride gets stripped away, and Jesus is able to speak into someone's shame and guilt and struggles, that doesn't stop the relationship, that doesn't end the relationship, just the opposite. That's the very thing that strengthens the relationship, right? Those really difficult conversations, those hard, open conversations, that's when Jesus proved the extent of his love. That's when he showed these people, listen, I see you, and I still love you. And I want the very best for you. People that see us and love us and want the very best for us. People who will strengthen us in the Lord. What a blessing. We're called to be those people. To strengthen each other in the Lord. And that's where healing takes place. That's why people were so crazy about Jesus. He he knew the real them and, and he still loved them. So many times we try to hide We don't want people to see the real us. And it is so self-defeating when you think about it. Because as long as I'm hiding a part of me, you're never going to know the real me. But I'm afraid, okay, if you knew the real me, you wouldn't love the real me. But here's the irony of this thing. Who did Jesus come for? Who did Jesus die for? Sinners. People who are broken. The lost. The wicked, messed up people, dysfunctional people, the needy, the greedy, the seedy. People just like me, right? People just like you. See, I'm afraid you won't love me if you know the real me, but you know the real you, right? That's who Jesus came to die for. That's what we have in common. But then somehow we show up here on a Sunday morning and we become the church of the Immaculate Pretenders. I haven't spoken to my wife, you know, all weekend. I about strangled my kids on the way to church this morning. No, we have been fighting and bickering, but we walk in those doors. How you doing, brother? Wonderful. How about you? And that's about as far as it goes, right? This one anothering thing, this admitting your faults to one another, praying for one another, man, that can only happen with a handful of trusted people that you are committed to loving and that you know are committed to loving you. And that's who we're called to be. 
That's who we're called to be with each other. It only happens in a small circle. And I'll give you one more one another command that, that I think really only happens in, in smaller community. And that is our command to love each other. I said that last one, to admit our faults to one another might be the toughest. I think this might be the most important. Sixteen different times in the New Testament, we are commanded to love one another. Peter puts it this way. See to it that you really do love each other intensely with all your hearts. See to it that you really do. This is a commandment. This is not a suggestion. This is not a, it might work out, might be better. See to it, here's your command, that you intensely, you love each other intensely with all your hearts. You know, if I had to put my finger on one thing that makes a church great, not just good, one thing that makes a church great, it would not be the building, it would not be the budget, it would not be the preaching, it would not be the teaching for that matter, it wouldn't be the music, it wouldn't be the programs. I think the one thing that makes a church great is how we love. Our love for each other, our love for our Lord, our love for the lost. The greatest of these is love, is what Paul tells us. And again, you can't truly love someone, and they can't truly love you when your only interaction is eye contact across the crowded auditorium on a Sunday. We were created to do life together. Jesus came and he started this thing that we call the church. You need the church. But listen, the church needs you. We need each other. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing when the church becomes the church. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship the breaking of bread, to prayer. Again, I'm going to spend the next couple weeks talking about what that's going to look like here at Bay Area. Some of it's going to be very familiar to you. Some of it might be a little bit different. But we don't want to just do church together. We want to do life together. So again, I'm really going to encourage you to be here in attendance the following two weeks. There's billions of people in the world today Somebody should come up with a system where nobody's lonely. Somebody did. His name is Jesus. The cost is the cross. The place is the church. And the secret is love. And for all of us and all people that we know who just get so lonely, who get so disconnected, who feel like I'm hanging on by a thread... And we look around at our lives and we think to ourselves, man, nobody's coming over. Nobody's coming over. Jesus wants to be sure that you hear him when he tells you, look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal as friends. Jesus says, oh, I'm coming over. You're lonely you're isolated, you're struggling, I'm coming over. I'm not going to force myself on you, but I'm already here. I'm knocking on your door. 
I want you to let me in. And we're going to share a meal together. Me and you, Jesus says, me and you, we're going to be friends. I'll take that, right? He's already here. His invitation is simply open the door, let me in, let's do life together. That's our goal as part of his family. We want to do life together. We want to help each other grow closer and closer to Jesus. We want to show the lost how much we love God, how much we love them. We want to share those blessings that we've been given. This morning, if you feel like no one's coming over, I hope you're reminded Jesus is already here. He's knocking on the door. If you feel like I haven't been really engaged like I know I should be, I want the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart this morning. And I want you to be here the next two weeks as we think about the direction that God is leading us as his family here at Bay Area. So for this morning, we've got a song that we're going to sing as a song of encouragement. Uh, As always, as, as a family, If there's something that we can help you with, pray with you about, uh, there'll be some people here at the front of the auditorium. We invite you to come and share with us then. Let's go ahead and be standing while we're singing.